Take your Bibles tonight, let's go to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. I'm excited about next week. The barbecue around here is really good. And I wanted to sign up and tell James that maybe he ought to grab an extra pig. I don't know, for some reason I'm feeling hungry next week. I can feel it coming. So, uh, but looking forward to that, invite some people to be with you. It'll be a great time. We'll enjoy the fellowship and the time together. Psalm 85, and if you would, stand with me if you're able, and we'll go to verse number 10, verse number 10, and tonight I'd just like to take a look and see our God, see who he is and see him and all that he does. Verse number 10, Psalm 85, mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now, of course, the first time I read that verse, you know, I had other thoughts that came into my mind, you know, meeting together and kissing and all this stuff. What is this doing in the word of God? And yet when you put it into the context of how these things are meeting together and what they're actually doing, what a beautiful figure it is as you see that. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Let's pray. Dear we do thank you for this night. We thank you for the great preaching today, for the opportunity to be back in the house of God. Dear Lord, we do pray that as we open your word tonight, that your Holy Spirit will move and guide in each of our hearts. Dear Lord, give exactly what you have for each of us, apply it to our lives, prepare us for the week ahead. And dear Lord, we'll thank you in advance for all that you'll do. Thank you so much for your word. And dear Lord, just the fact that you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Psalm 85, if you look here, it says, God's past mercies. If you have that heading, some Bibles may have that listed there. And it's not just past mercies, though. It's the mercies that God gives that are new every morning. And the fact, great is thy faithfulness, because those mercies are there. The very first thing I'd like to look at as we get into Psalm 85, let's read verses 1 through 4. And we're going to look at the ministry that God has performed among his people. He says, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. You know, if Psalm 85 stopped just at that point with that word selah, and the word selah with the idea of pause, stop, and think, meditate on what you've just been told. If Psalm 85 ended just at that point and we looked at what God had done for his people, the ministry that he had, had among them, look how amazing this is. Thou hast been favorable. Thou hast brought them back. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity. Thou hast covered all their sin. The writer here begins with praise and thanksgiving for all that God has done. And it's mostly spiritual as you look at this. He's brought back the captivity, yes. But the fact of the forgiveness of sins and covering their iniquities is the spiritual impact of what God has provided. When you look at this psalm, it comes across almost as a prayer. We're often reminded that prayer is not just about what we want to see done, but it's meant to be a time of worship and of telling God how great he is for great things he had done. When you look at verse 1, who is it that restores? Who is it that forgives? Who is it that can give favor? And it says, Lord, thou hast been favorable. It's God. It is our God that does all of these things. And what did he do? He brought us back 
out of captivity. Now, we're talking specifically about the Jewish people and the fact of them coming back out of their captivity. But with us, we were captives to sin. And God has brought us out of that captivity and out of that bondage and given us new life in Christ. He has forgiven our iniquity. The fact of being forgiven by God. The God who knows and sees all, and yet He forgives all. Those iniquities are all forgiven. He has covered our sins. Now we'll get more into that, but think about this. He covered our sins with the blood of His Son. The blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the perfect Lamb of God, covers our sins. So that when God sees me, He doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see that. He sees the blood and the righteousness of His Son. He has looked on us with love and not with judgment. Look at verse number 4. Uh, let's read verse 3 first. It says, verse 3, Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Verse 4, turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Thinking about all that God has done in order to prepare the way of salvation, to prepare eternal life for us, to prepare that home in heaven, to prepare the plan and the path that he has for each and every one of us every day. What does it say in verse 4? It says, turn us, O God of our salvation. Turn our hearts back to you. Think about this. Israel as a people often turned away from God and lost sight of their God. And then God would have to judgment. And when that judgment would come, then they would turn back to God. But who was it that does the turning? It's God that turns our hearts back to him. Because God is constantly pleading through his Holy Spirit Come back to me. Look at what I have for you. Think about this. Turn us back to you. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Cleanse our hearts. Revive our dedication to you. Change me as I allow you to work in my heart and my life and make me what you would have me to be. Now, with that idea, if I'm going to allow God to turn me, if I'm going to be turned to God, then what do I have to do? I have to offer up myself to him. I have to allow God to work in my life. I have to allow him to come in and examine every part of who and what I am, and then he will turn me to him. The same God that can save my soul can transform me by turning me back to him, can transform me into the image of his son. Jesus Christ. You know, that's the goal that God has for us as Christians, to be conformed to the image of his son. So the psalmist here begins with a look at God and all the things that he has done for us. And he recalls the fact that God has worked in the past and God will continue to work. Now, that work doesn't just, is not limited just to the past. God wants to deal with them in the present and he also wants to deal with them in their future. Now, go down to verse 5 through 7. Not only does God have a ministry that he wants to do in us, but then he shows us his mercy. Verse 5 says, Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, 
and grant us thy salvation. Now, the psalmist, whoever it is, whether it's David, there's controversy over exactly who is the writer of this psalm. But as you get into it and look at it, verse number five, it says, Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw thine anger to all generations? And the truth is, the answer to that is no. God will not be angry forever. God will not hold out his blessings from his people. He will continue to pour out his love upon them. But think about this. Even with God restoring them and turning them back to himself, there were still things that had to be dealt with. As we look into the character of God, what do we see? Often we recognize who he is, and by seeing who he is, we see what we really are. You think about Isaiah. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, what did he say? Woe is me, for I am, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. When we see God for who he really is, then often we will see ourselves where we really are. Now, as that comes into view, the awesome part of that is verse number five. Would thou be angry with us forever? The answer is no. I daily fall short of the glory of God. I daily stumble in my walk with him. There's days where I lack the faith or I lack the commitment that I should have as a Christian following my God. And yet he's not going to be angry forever. He's not going to draw out his rebuke to all generations. What's he going to do? Look at verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us? Again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. Isn't it amazing how this verse starts? We often think of revivals as man-started events. Where someone started preaching and then people started coming to the altar and all these things start happening. And yet a revival is not a man-made event. Man, as far as who we are, we cannot create a revival. A revival only comes about through the power of God and through the moving of the Holy Spirit among his people. And with this, what do we have? It says, will thou not revive us again? It's God that has to revive us. It's God that will begin that work to restore us to what we really want to see. Will thou not revive us again? I have to rest on God's power, on God's wisdom. I have to rest on the God of my salvation to revive in me what he wants to be there. What does he want? He wants me to have joy. He wants me to rejoice in him. He wants me to walk with him. But it requires me surrendering completely to him to do that work. Will thou not revive us again? When he does, when God does that work in our heart and in our soul and in our lives then what happens? Then we are going to rejoice in him. God will quicken. He will restore. He will change us. He'll keep us. He'll direct us. He will do a work in us that only he can do. Why? Because he's the potter and we're the clay. And he does it, the Bible says, so the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He does it to show his power. He does it so that he can be glorified in everything that is said and done so that he gets the glory. Will thou not revive us again? 
And when he does, when I give everything to God, and when I surrender to him, then he's going to do that work. And it says that he will allow us to rejoice in him. He'll bring that rejoicing back to us and cause us to be able to rejoice not only what he has done. Remember, we've already looked at the past. We can rejoice in our salvation. We can rejoice in what God has done. But we need to see God work in our present, too. We want to see God work in our future, too. We can rejoice in what God is doing. We can see His mercy. We can see who He is. We can rejoice in the fact that He is the one that will revive that work, that will revive my soul and give me something to joy in Him as I see Him not just in my past but also in my present. Go down to verse number 7. It says, show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. A unique way to finish as we're working through God's work in us, his ministry in us, his mercy. As you look at this, what is his mercy? So you go back and you look it up. Dictionaries are wonderful things. Mercy, the benevolence, tenderness of heart, which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. So the God who created us, the God who made us, and that we turned our backs on because of sin, says, I still love you. And I will overlook any injury. I will, go, I will get past the fact that you have been an offender, that you've been a sinner, that you've turned against me, and I will look at you with mercy. You know, our sin separates us from God, but God doesn't see our sin. When we're saved, he sees, again, the righteousness of Christ through his blood. He doesn't look at my faults and failures, but looks at me in love and forgiveness and sees a purpose and a plan for my life that I'm not often able to comprehend. Why? Because I get so stuck in my present that it's hard to see that future. It's hard to look ahead and see what God has for me. And honestly, if I were able to look ahead, it might scare me. You know, there's things up there that I might not want to see. There's things that I might think, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I'm capable of that. I'm not sure if that's really where God is leading. So God doesn't reveal to us that future. He says, walk with me today. Talk with me today. Look at what I'm doing in you today. I'm dealing with you in mercy. And I have a plan, and I just need for you to trust me. I need for you to lean on me. I need for you to know that I'm in control. What a wonderful God we have. And what is his purpose? All right, verse 6 goes back and says the word revive. His purpose is to recover new life or vigor to be reanimated, to recover back to a former state, to renew in the minor memory, to recall. You know, you look at this, the verse here is not just for the past, it's for the present, it's for the future. The writer has to be shown the mercy that God has given so many times in the past, and he prays will continue through the time that he's now in. And with that, he sees salvation in the past, he sees the fact of all God has done, and of course is looking forward to what God can do. 
and what God will do. With the God that we serve, we can expect Him to do great things. We can expect Him to work on our behalf. We can trust Him that He still has a perfect plan and He will fulfill that. He will restore. He will revive. He'll allow me to rejoice. He'll allow me to see Him working again even though I get caught in those circumstances. When you look at the children of Israel, they were stuck in the circumstances of life, and yet God had a larger path and a larger plan for them. He needed them to see His ministry, what He had done for them. He needed them to see His mercy and how He had dealt with them in that mercy throughout the entirety of their history and everything that He had worked with them on. It had always been through the mercy of God that was presented to them. Then go down to verse number 8. And this is kind of where we get bogged down. Sorry, the first three pages go really fast. And then I get down to verse 8, and it just seems like everything came flooding into my mind. So now we're getting to the fun part. Of course, verse 10 was our text, so you know that kind of leads up to where you know I'm heading to. But we have the mission that God has. Almost like a prayer, we can see a progression through these verses. It starts out with the praise and thankfulness to God. And then the prayer for forgiveness and a recognition of what I am before Him. And then a request for God to move and to work and to revive and allow us to rejoice and show me your path. And now we see the final aspect in the psalm. It finishes with a declaration of what the writer knows and believes. Verse number 8. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good. And our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him. And shall set us in the way of his steps. Going back to verse number 8, it says... I will hear what God the Lord will speak. That's an amazing statement when you really look at it and all that's there. The idea I will hear is the fact that I'm going to listen for what God is ready to say. But as a sinner, I have to make sure that I'm ready to listen, that I'm prepared to listen, that I'm willing to listen. And often, there has to be that longing to listen. How did God speak when he came and before Moses? It wasn't in the loud voice or in the thunderings or in the earthquake. It was in that still, small voice. And that's where I've got to prepare myself, but I've got to be longing for it. I've got to be listening. I've got to be looking for the Lord to speak. You know, there are often times that we want to hear from God. There's times when we pour ourselves out to God and say, okay, God, I'm ready to hear you. I need an answer. I have this problem. I'm looking for this friend or this coworker or this family member to get saved. I have a burden on my heart, and God, I want to hear from you. It says, I will, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. 
the amazing part of that is when I prepare myself and I'm ready to hear from God. And my heart's desire is that I'm before Him and waiting. It says that He will speak. He always has the answer. He always knows what's going on. I will hear. He will speak peace unto His people and to His saints. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace unto His people and to His saints. He will, as our loving Father come to us, will speak to our hearts and to our minds. And how does He do that? Of course, He does that through His Word. He does that through the Holy Spirit. He can use the ministry of others. But God wants to speak to us. And He wants us to hear what He has for us. And as we prepare our hearts and as we're listening for Him, He will speak and He will give His message and He will provide the answer. And He is near. He's there. And He is all that I need. And He will supply exactly what is there. Now, as we go into the end of the chapter, I had to do a little bit of history background, so bear with me just a second. Here we go. Several different commentators have different ideas when this psalm was written and exactly what its purpose is. So when we look at this, some say that it happened at the time where Israel had been exiled and gone into exile and the captivity because of their sin. And now they're starting to come back to the land of Israel, back to Jerusalem. Now, in that coming back, of course, it's a joyous time because they're being restored back to the land that God promised to them, the land flowing with milk and honey. So they're on their way back to the land of promise. But yet in coming back, what do they find? They find cities that are destroyed and land that is burnt and weeds and nettles and thorns and everything that you can imagine over the last 70 years that have grown up in this place. So there is a joy in the fact that they're returning back to the land that God has promised them. And they're returning back to their home. But there are also some fear and some lack of determination maybe, some depression. Because as they look at what they're facing, in order to get everything back restored and present everything back the way it needs to be, there's going to be a lot of hard work. There's going to be some years of toil and struggle. There are enemies without that they are facing. When you go into Ezra and Nehemiah, it talks about those enemies and how things weren't always perfect in the process of coming back to the land of promise. So when you look at this, it could be that there's mixed emotions coming back from the captivity, coming back to what God had given them and praying that God will accomplish exactly what He has for them. The other part of this could be the fact that it is a prophetic psalm dealing with Christ's millennial kingdom. And the idea with this is, throughout Israel's history, they had been taken captive and then released and struggled throughout their history because of the sin and turning away from God. And one day, they will be restored. And when Christ comes back and establishes their homeland and gives them back that land of promise and he reigns as king of kings and lord of lords, then all will be well and all will be right. Either way we look at this psalm, whether it's 
talking about what they were dealing with right then, or whether it's talking about a prophetic time that will be to come, there's truths that we can look at as we finish out. Jumping down to verse number 9, it says, Surely his salvation is nigh them that hear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Isn't it amazing to think that salvation is nigh? For those that fear him, of course, there's that spiritual, eternal salvation that we can rely on, that we can rest on, that we can trust in the fact that we know where our destiny lies. Our destiny lies in the fact of a home in heaven with Christ for all eternity. And we can look to the future and recognize the fact of that salvation from this world and salvation from the curse of sin and from all the things that we go through. But we can also apply that to the present. The tribulations and the trials and the things that we face, God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. So in our troubles, we can run to God and He'll be listening for us and He'll be ready to answer and ready to receive and wanting to bring His salvation through that experience and His salvation from those troubles and present Himself as the God that is able to do everything that we need. Verse number 10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Now think about this. We've heard a lot of preaching about Jesus from John chapter 10, and we've been talking about the fact that he is the good shepherd, and he is the door, and he is the bread of life, and all the things that Christ is. Of course, John 14 and verse number 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. Think about this, our God is a God of truth. There are absolutes that we're supposed to live by. Absolutes found in the Word of God, which are not out of date and which are not old-fashioned. They're the truths that we're still supposed to live by today. And as we look at those, that truth comes from our perfect and holy God. And yet, in His mercy, He desires a relationship with us. In His mercy, He wants us to be his child. He wants to reestablish the connection that he does through salvation, through accepting Jesus Christ. So in his mercy, what does he do? He sends Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, so that we can come to the Father and be his child, so he can work in us and work through us, so that he can be our God and so we can be his child. He offers that salvation. He restores that communion and that fellowship through His Son, Jesus Christ, the precious gift of salvation. So mercy and truth meet together. The fact of God being holy and all-powerful and all-knowing and being completely righteous, being the truth in human form when He came down in the form of Jesus Christ in a human body, being the truth, meeting together with the mercy of being willing to accept me, to being willing to save the world. Mercy and truth are met together, and they come together and allow that fellowship to be restored. They come together and provide a path and a life 
and light and joy and all the things that this world searches for in the person of Jesus Christ who allows that truth and that mercy to meet and for them to dwell together in unity because of what he did and giving his life for us. His truth is confronted by the mercy and now they can walk together. In spite of what I am, through salvation, through Jesus Christ, I can have fellowship with God. I can walk with Him and talk with Him. Hebrews says I can come boldly unto the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can walk with my Savior day by day because mercy and truth are now hand in hand. Now the second part of this is righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now that could be an interesting thing to try to picture in your mind, right? Righteousness and peace kissing. I'm not sure, you know, how we ought to approach that at first. Um, now that I'm married, you know, a whole different thought. Okay, this could be a good thing. But before I was married, no, you're not supposed to go there, right? That's, that's a bad thing to do. But in this instance, we're looking at the fact of two characteristics, two truths that are coming together. The righteousness of God had to be satisfied. And the righteousness of God had to come into contact with peace that only He could give to us. And that peace was purchased by Jesus Christ, shedding His blood, dying on that cross, and rising again the third day. And now, because of His peace, I can be proclaimed righteous. We come back to that same circle and look at this again, the fact that because of the peace that we can have that peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, that now I can be proclaimed righteous before God. Not because of anything that I can do, but because of the righteousness of Christ. The Bible says that when we get to heaven, the Lamb will be presented with His bride, and the bride of Christ will be clothed in the righteousness of the Lamb. We'll be clothed with the righteousness that God will give us because of the sacrifice of His Son. Because He loves us so much. Look at verse number 11. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. Now we'll do a double application with these two as we go through. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Think about this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chooses to put on flesh and become a man. He chooses to humble himself, and the Bible says to put on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Why? In order to save us. In order to provide that salvation. He chooses to die on that old rugged cross. The very truth of God dies but then rises again the third day in complete victory over sin and over death 
and over hell. Truth shall spring out of the earth. The fact of God coming in human form and then presenting to us the truth of God's love, the truth of salvation, the truth of His power to save and to change us and to conform us to His image and to give us that home in heaven. The truths that we find in the Word of God presented through the person of Jesus Christ and everything that He accomplished. Then it says, Righteousness shall look down from heaven. The most righteous God in heaven is able to look down on his creation and declare us righteous. That's an amazing thought. Righteousness looks down and through that sacrifice and because of what Christ did, sees us with an account that is declared holy and true and paid in full because of what he accomplishes for us. Verse number 12 says, Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. God is always good. There's a song that says, When I don't understand, when I can't see his plan, when I can't trust, trace his hand, I can trust his heart. God doesn't make mistakes, God never makes an error. God always does that which is good. And as human beings, it's hard for us to understand that. Because when we're going through the trial, we look at it and say, how can this ever do anything that's supposed to encourage or cause me to rejoice or make this better? Because we only see what we can see as humans here on this earth. And yet God in heaven sees the full picture and knows both sides and understand that everything that we go through has a purpose. Everything that we see and that we do and the people that we encounter is a part of the plan of us walking with him day by day. And as we're walking that path and as we're following him is meant to be for his honor and for his glory. It's meant for us to see the fact that he's working in us and he's working through us. And as he's doing that, we can rejoice because of the God who's willing to be a part of our lives. Because of the God who is willing to show his truth. The God who's willing to cover me in his righteousness. The God who's willing to give me his mercy. The God who's going to lead us and to guide us. Verse number 13. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. Just like that loving shepherd, the good shepherd, takes and comes and calls his sheep by name and they follow him and he leads them in the ways that they're supposed to go. God wants us to follow him. And righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. Sometimes it's not even the fact of me taking the step. Think about that lamb who has run away and gotten itself into an area where it's in some deep trouble. And what does that shepherd do? The shepherd goes and can pick up that lamb and turn it around and put it back in the steps that it's supposed to be following, back into the way that it's supposed to go. Why? For the good of the lamb. Because the lamb didn't know where it was supposed to be heading, but the good shepherd did. 
And often as I'm heading in a direction and think that I'm going in the path that I'm supposed to be following, God has to pick me up and say, listen, that's not the way you're supposed to be going. Let me set you back in the path. Let me set you back in the way where you're supposed to be. Let me put you in the path where you're once again following me. Where you're close by my side so that you're safe and you're protected. And in need, the Bible says that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That little kid song, he's still working on me. Often we, we laugh and think about those little songs as we sang them in junior church. And yet the truths behind them are magnificent. Because he is still working on me to make me what I ought to be. And even though it took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars, and I just drew a blank, how loving and faithful he must be, he's still working on me. That's the amazing fact of the God that we serve. And then as we look at this, it's not just the fact of God working in my life, and putting me where I need to be. But it's also the fact that as God works in me. I'm supposed to proclaim that truth to others. Truth shall spring out of the earth. That truth that God has put in my heart and in my soul has to come out. If God has saved my soul. If God has worked in me. Then I need to proclaim his truth. That Jesus saves. That Jesus works in our hearts. That Jesus has a plan for each and every life. I need to proclaim His righteousness. So that others see our righteous God. They see the truth that we can be declared righteous through Jesus Christ. I need to proclaim the gospel which will save men's souls. I need to be a part of of what God is doing. Why? Because I need to see our God. I need to see what He has done. I need to see what He will do. The Bible says that we have to set our eyes upon Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Isn't that amazing? He's the author of our faith. He calls us to Himself through the Holy Spirit, through the hearing of the Word of God. I just dropped a paper. But He draws us to Himself he gives us exactly what we need to come to Him. And He begins that process of calling us so that we accept Him and we become a child of God. But it also says He's the finisher of our faith. It's not just enough that He begins that work, but He says, I will finish it. I will bring you to myself. I will bring you to my heavenly home. I will finish the work that I've begun in you. And it is a good work. And it is the work that I have planned for you. It's the path that I want you to follow. I want you to live for me. I want you to see my love and my mercy. I want you to see my truth. I want you to live in my righteousness. I want you to proclaim my peace. To all the world. Why? Because that is the plan. That's why he came. 
is so that others would see the truth of who he is and the work that he has done and the work that he still has for us to do.